The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It's February the 3rd. The time is 4.04. And on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. And I'm Mirtha Donna Storg, bringing you Eye on the Triangle on this rainy hump day. Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review. This week he reviews the newest album by G-Star. And Jake Winters brings you Snowverated. This week he reviews Bogman. Kevin Cronk talks to the organizers of the Krispy Kreme Challenge. This is the 12th year that the race will be held. We'll have the community calendar by Peter Svizzini. And as always, Saif Hazan brings you the news beyond the headlines. Later in the hour, we'll be talking to student leaders about the racial climate on campus and increasing inclusion on campus. So tweet us your questions for them at WKNC underscore EOT. But right now, let's take a look at the weather with our newest contributor, Michael Ashburn. For today, there's a 30% chance that it's already raining, but expect more showers and thunderstorms this evening with a low of 58. Don't forget your umbrellas tomorrow as there will be off and on rain throughout the day with a low of 58 or high of 58 and a low of 36. This weekend is looking a little bit on the chilly side, so be with partly cloudy weather and highs around 50 and lows around 30. With Eye on the Triangle weather, this is Michael Ashburn. I'm Saif Hassan, and this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Kenyan police have launched an investigation after a large number of attacks on Uber drivers in Nairobi. Criminal gangs have attacked drivers for the app-based taxi service over the past two days, authorities say. The violence has been linked to traditional taxi drivers angered at being undercut by the new service, which often charges far cheaper fares. The new company has sparked protests in many of the cities in the 68 countries where it now operates. The Kenyan Interior Ministry said in its statement that the barbaric acts should never be committed to settle business rivalries. Police told local media that they had received reports of people ordering Uber taxis in order to assault the drivers when they arrived. The company acknowledged cases of isolated intimidation towards Uber driver partners in a statement carried by local media. These cases shock and sadden us as these driver partners are simply using the Uber platform to earn a living for themselves and their families. Kenya's Taxicab Association has demanded that Uber suspend its operations in Nairobi, arguing that it has an unfair advantage because its drivers do not have to pay costly registration fees. Uber, which launched in Kenya in January 2015, is thought to be the world's most valuable private company with an estimated worth of more than 50 billion US dollars. India's Minister for Women and Children has been criticized for proposing compulsory gender testing of fetuses to tackle the skewed sex ratio. Monica Gandhi said the strategy would help monitor pregnancies and reduce abortions of female fetuses. But activists and opposition parties say that it will increase pressure on women to undergo sex-selective abortions. Tests to determine if fetuses' sex are banned in India, but many parents still have them done illegally. A traditional preference for boys and an easy availability of antenatal sex screening has led to India having one of the most unbalanced gender ratios in the world. In 1961, there were 976 girls for every 1,000 boys under the age of 7, 
According to the latest census figures released in 2011, that figure has dropped to a dismal 914 girls for every 1,000 boys. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has criticized female feticide, warning that the gender imbalance will have serious repercussions for India's development in the future. His predecessor, Manmohan Singh, described it as a national shame and called for a crusade to save India's girls. Over the years, campaigners have said the decline in young girls is largely due to the increased availability of antenatal sex screening. In 1994, India outlawed sex-selective abortion. That's why Ms. Gandhi's controversial statement that every pregnant woman should be compulsorily told whether it's a boy or a girl has generated such a storm. Amid the furor, Ms. Gandhi's ministry clarified on Tuesday that it was just a point of view to start a debate and that there was no formal proposal before the cabinet. But opposition parties and women's rights activists said her suggestion could prove counterproductive. The Congress party said the minister's statement was shocking and outlandish and that the government appears determined to convert the Save the Girl Child campaign into a Banish the Girl Child campaign. Lifting the ban will undo years of hard work, institutional mechanisms, and legal framework that has been put in place for the last two decades to discourage female feticide, the party said in a statement. The head of the local Delhi government women's commission, Swati Maliwal, also criticized the minister. It will increase female feticide phenomenally. It is dangerous and should not be done, she said. Critics say that Miss Ghani's idea to monitor every pregnancy right until the end is impractical, especially in rural India where health services are far from adequate and even non-existent in some areas. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines. Up next, Kevin Kronk talks with the organizers of the Krispy Kreme Challenge. We are here to talk about the 12th annual Krispy Kreme Challenge. Could you guys introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Bruntley Hovey. I'm a part of the marketing team for the Krispy Kreme Challenge. Real excited about the 12th annual race this year. And I'm Marcel Souffrant, also excited and working with Brentley on this marketing scheme for the Krispy Kreme Challenge, our dozenth annual race, as we like to say this year. All right, how did this all start, guys? I mean, who thought of such a crazy idea? Yeah, so it's uh, definitely a, a unique race. It all started 12 years ago. A group of a handful of park scholars who were all friends at the time, they kind of dared each other to run from the bell tower to the Krispy Kreme store, down a dozen donuts, and then make the return run back to campus. Yeah, so it only started with a couple guys, you know, a couple friends doing it. And after after a while, it really started to build and, and pick up some pace, I guess would be the, the appropriate yeah. term, right? <laughs> Did you ever expect that so many people would enjoy this? That so many people would want to do it? You know, if you would have told me this idea on paper, I probably would have never imagined how big of a race this has been. It's, but I think that's that's part of the uh, appeal is that it is kind of a unique race and it's got a, a flavorful twist to it. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd have to agree wholeheartedly. So you think it's the challenge and the lighthearted humored whatever of the whole race that makes people want to do it? Yeah, I think that's the attraction to the race. Not only is it a challenge to you know run five miles in total, eat 12 donuts, those things separately are a challenge to a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> but then on top of it, you get to donate to the Children's Hospital, which is also fantastic. And we've been able to donate a lot of money so far, and we hope to continue that. Yeah, exactly. Also, I love your motto that says, the Krispy Kreme challenge epitomizes the test of physical fitness and gastrointestinal fortitude. <laughs> yeah, that. that's true. You can come out on race day and see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it necessary to eat all 12 donuts or do most people just eat a few and still run the race? 
So it is it is not necessary that you eat all 12 dozen donuts. Uh, that's the traditional, that's the challenge of the Krispy Kreme challenge is to eat the 12 donuts and make it back in under an hour. But you can register as a casual runner. You can eat a few donuts. You can run, walk, crawl. It doesn't matter. It's all for a good cause. Sweet. Sounds sweet. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any milk? Because I heard the real challenge is to, and that's like in quotes, the real challenge is to drink a glass of milk with your dozen of donuts. Um, I, that's not what I've heard. I haven't heard that. It may be true that might be a real challenge, but I have not participated in that Yeah, sense. every year we see people innovate new ways in getting down the dozen donuts. I, I've heard people stack three at a time and try and get yeah, them that exactly. way. Um, Dipping them in milk or water, yeah, there's there's all sorts of wacky strategies out there. Whatever it takes, right? Yeah, hopefully just to keep it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a challenge in and of itself, too. Do you guys participate? We have, well, I think this year Brentley Yeah, is... this will be the first year that I'm going to run the race. I haven't run it in the past since I've helped out in various capacities, but this year I want to I wanna take the challenge myself. Yeah, the past years I've been working on race day, helping with the setup, helping... Uh, take pictures and other things of that nature. So I have not participated in the sense of of running. No. Okay. Do you ever want to? I'm I'm not sure. I would <laughs> I would love to, but I'm not sure if I really want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun trying to convince people to do it, but it's a little scary doing it. It, it, is. it is. It is. I've been. I mean, I've been trying to get in the marketing team, trying to get people to sign up all year, and then when it comes time for me to sign up, I'm like, wow, five miles, a dozen donuts. That is a challenge. So this is just out of curiosity. Does Krispy Kreme offer gluten-free donuts? I'm not gluten-free, but just curious for those who are. I actually, I I don't think we do. The challenge or the company? Hmm, I guess either way. I don't even know if Krispy Kreme offers. I'm, I'm not sure if the company does. I know all, all of our donuts are the original glazed. Mm-hmm. We keep it simple. We don't want to add too many flavors or anything of that nature. But we offer the dozen glazed, and that's that's what the runners get when they come to Krispy Kreme. Okay, I'd have to ask Krispy Kreme that question. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so speaking of Krispy Kreme, how receptive were to the race when this all started? So... The the Krispy Kreme company you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So they uh, we're not directly affiliated with the uh, corporation in any way, so I can't really speak a whole lot to that. Um, they, you know, we basically are partnered with them in a big fundraiser, but that's that's about the extent yeah. of our partnership. Okay, <laughs> so it's just it's more the financial business aspect of it for them. I suppose so. Yeah, they. I mean, we we don't really have anything official and no official affiliations with the company. Do you have any idea how many people are coming out this year? How many donuts are going to make? Uh, yeah. So this year we're looking at roughly seven thousand runners coming out to the race. So it's a oh huge event. It's been. I mean, it's been named the number one NC State tradition now. Each year we see about seven thousand, eight thousand runners. So we're we're pretty excited. For this year's race. That's fantastic. What, 7,000, 8,000 times 12? That's, almost, that's 100,000 or so? It's a, a, a lot of donuts. It's yeah. a lot of donuts. <laughs> Are they warm at all, or do they just churn them out before the race? I guess you could, it'd be hard to make them all that warm. Yeah, I, I think, so we have to ship some of them in, and, and the uh, Krispy Kreme downtown does make uh, a lot of them for us. Mm-hmm. Um but usually it's pretty early in the morning. Uh, February is not one of the warmest months, so they're not they're not too hot. They don't the hot and ready sign is not on when the it's runners get there. No. Yeah, we we're pulling so many donuts that they they actually have to ship them in from different facilities as well. So they're I mean, 
you don't quite realize how many donuts, 7,000, 8,000 donuts is until you see them <laughs> stacked at the store. That's hilarious. It might not be that cold this this time, though. Right? Oh, this this year we're expecting great weather, so it'll be a nice race. Last year was on Valentine's Day, and it was uh, pretty cold out there. Uh, <laughs> but I think we'll, we'll be able to have some good weather and hopefully a little bit of sun, too. Yeah. Cool. Do you guys know at all what... What's what's done with all the boxes? Well, we we've been told that they're all recycled, which is good to hear. And all the boxes are recyclable, mm-hmm. so that's nice. And then the donuts that aren't picked up because we do have runners who may not show up on race day or that choose the casual runners who choose not to take a dozen. Uh, they choose not to eat the donuts. They just want to do it for the fun <clears throat> and with the camaraderie and everything else. So those donuts are donated afterwards, and we're given they're given away. Cool. That sounds good. Yeah, okay, so we've already sort of talked about this, but I've heard one of the tricks to getting all 12 down is to mash them like a pancake and eat them. Do you guys have any tricks or tips you would like to give the <laughs> runners? I've, I've heard all sorts of crazy things. I think one of, one, of my, like, one of the weirdest ones I've heard is people just soak them in water until <laughs> they, like, this is kind of disgusting. It almost becomes like a soupy paste of donuts, and then they just kind of, like, slurp it down like a thick uh. soup. <laughs> I mean, I, I that's probably, like, from a veteran runner who was, like, done it before. I don't yeah. know anyone who would try <laughs> that's that. That's one of those 27-minute guys. You yeah. Know? Oh, <laughs> is that one of the best times, 27 minutes? I, I, I think, think it's below that now. Is it? Right. Yeah, uh, I, I know, like, if, if you want to win, you got to be running it in about a half hour or less. Yeah. Oh my gosh, five miles, right? Yeah, yeah so five I miles, mean, 12 you're running six minute miles. Yeah, and you got to fit donut. 12 donuts somewhere <laughs> in there, too. I don't know how they do it. What's going to be your strategy this year? Uh, what's going to be my strategy? I think I'm going to take the first two and a half miles to the Krispy Kreme store there kind of easy so my stomach isn't super upset. And then hopefully I can just eat up the donuts pretty quickly. Keep them down and just like book, run, book it, book it back as fast as I can. Just get through. The but I think that's going to be my strategy: is take the first half a little easy so it doesn't upset my stomach. Because a lot of people they get hung up, you know, they run two and a half miles, which is a fair distance, and then they just can't eat the donuts when they're at the, you know, the halfway mark. Oh my gosh, I'm sure too, especially because it'd be so sweet. It'd be yeah, super sweet. yeah, a lot of <laughs> a lot of sugar. That's for sure. <laughs> Okay, so all of the proceeds are donated to the North Carolina Children's Hospital. Could you tell us a little bit about them and what they do with the money? So they've, we've been able to give a lot of money towards them, and, and we've actually made a promise to give another million more. Mm-hmm. So we've donated close to a million dollars so far, and in the next five years we plan to give one more million. They've been able to use it for different things in the hospital rooms to make sure the children feel comfortable and the parents feel comfortable. We've helped do the, the helicopter pad at yeah. the hospital. We That was a, a large part because of the Krispy Kreme Challenge, which is great. But there are other small things like teddy bears in the rooms and things just to make the children and the families feel comfortable during their stay because this, these are the sickest of the sick in North Carolina. There is an application screening process to get to the hospital. So these children are in dire need of care, and we try to make their, their stay at the hospital as comfortable as possible. It's wonderful that we can have a good cause that might hurt us, but helps them. So. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I guess it's kind of ironic. And we're partnering with our, our rival school, right, with Chapel Hill, so uh, that's okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we got to come together to save the kids. Absolutely. Exactly. For the kids. <laughs> For the, ki- For the kids. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the race, like volunteering or fundraising or signing up? Yeah. If uh, if the listeners out there still want to sign up, um, you can at KrispyKremeChallenge.com. Also, if you want to volunteer for the race, you can do the same um, from our website. Something cool we're doing for the first time this year is we're giving out 
race medals. So for different age categories, gender, and different size teams, you can uh, win some cool prizes and you can win some medals as well. So that's hopefully will be an exciting addition to this year's race. Nice. So you said, where can we find more info? You said the website? Yeah, it's KrispyKremeChallenge.com. Sweet. That's simple. All right. The Krispy Kreme Challenge will be this Saturday, February 6th. I'd like to thank my guests, Brintley and Marcel. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. I'm Kevin Kronk, and this is Eye in the Triangle. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. Ladies and gentlemen, this album is a waste of my time and yours. That's right, I'm starting out swinging from the pit this time. Not even going to say what the album is before I dig my claws in. I've been waiting for months to trash an album, and now is my time. Huzzah! Well, okay, that's more than a little harsh, but I really didn't like this album. Like, really did not like this album. But before I go on listing my agitated grievances, I'll go ahead and tell you that this disappointing garbage goes by the name of Beats Misplaced by the band GT. Who are GT? Doesn't matter. Honestly, they're no one and they're probably going to stay that way. But all the same, they're a psych rock band from Birmingham, Alabama. They're a three-piece set and boy does it show. Apparently GT stands for a thousand things that the lead singer could never actually choose between, so for now, people just accept that it means get traveling. They're signed with the record label Communicating Vessels and will probably stay there. I would feel bad about all of the incredibly mean and probably unfair things I'm saying about them if I wasn't so utterly infuriated. Now, right off the bat, this album's got problems. I don't even have to open the case to see the first one, which is the fact that the band stylized its name with two backslashes before GT and two forward slashes after it. Look, I'm all for stylization, but dude, come on, it's not Xbox Live here, have some class. Joking nitpicks aside though, the music itself is entirely unimpressive. Is it actually worthless? Yes. I mean, no. No, it's not. But it's honestly just abject garbage in terms of originality, composition, or interesting features. The best you could probably accomplish with this album is playlist filler. That is the absolute best I can say for it. Listen to this right now. This song playing. Listen to it. It's called Lake Arthur Sunrise. I'll wait. doesn't sound like Pearl Jam got bored halfway through a session and instead of finishing the song just masked the whole damn thing in distortion. Sloppy percussion, lazy, and not in a good way slide guitar. One chord the entire time. The lead singer is just a half-drunk Eddie Vedder that forgot how the song Black was supposed to sound. And that's not even the worst part. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Every band has a goof song or two. Maybe even one per album. That's fair. I could excuse that. Except it's not one song. It's all of them. They're all like that. Every single song sounds exactly the same. The same echoey, distortion-drowned, lazy garbage. Listen. Listen right now. Go ahead and listen again. You hear that? 
That's supposed to be an entirely different song off the album. I bet you didn't even notice. I listened to the entire album while browsing Reddit, and I thought it was just one really long, boring prog rock song. What am I supposed to do with this? It's boring. Maybe there's some sense of atmosphere, but Yoko Ono has more variety than this. Same key, same notes, same chords, same vocal strength, same everything. It's incredible. That's a feat not accomplished since Bruce Springsteen's Pink Cadillac. The sheer lack of variety or interest is so mind-numbingly dense that I can't even call this an album. It's just one really long note disguised as a really long song disguised as an album. Maybe I'm being too intense with my utter hatred of this album. I mean, it's not the worst I've ever heard, and it's even in my genre, and a subgenre of that that I adore. So surely, I should have some fondness of it, right? Wrong! You want to know why I'm so hard on this? Because I feel lied to. I know you can't see it, but all the same, this cover art is sick! It's so cool! Like, it's graffiti-style photography as a background for a negative space pyramid, which itself is surrounded and encased by white, accented by the perfect shade of faded red. And the pyramid is sideways, so it looks like a play button. But just slightly above that is their logo, which is also really freaking tight! The fact that this album is garbage is an abominable offense to your brilliant graphic designer, GT, and I will not stand for it. He even made your music seem more atmospheric by creating the perfect palette of color and choice. This is the kind of album art that is symbolic of good music, and you ruined it. Ruined it! So, it's really not so much blind hate as it is utter and abject disappointment. In conclusion, the band describes their sound as psych rock embracing the humid and strange American South, but I would rather have the humid and strange South embrace me in suffocation than be forced to listen to this album with nothing else to do in the background again. My final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7 is 0. Below average! But if you're the kind of heathen that can ignore this horrible offense to album art and originality, then maybe you'll enjoy having this as a filler song in your Spotify playlist full of better music. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lenz, Klesk, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in review requests by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by tweeting review requests, followed by your request, to at WKNC underscore EOT on Twitter. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll yell at you all again next time. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snow Berated, and this week I will be taking a look at the Dutch thriller Borgman. Borgman is a 2013 movie that explores evil. The movie is odd, to say the least. It is hard to ever say what it is truly about, and there is so much confusion in the plot that it seems like it could be completely uninteresting and boring because you just get lost. But somehow, though, it was still captivating. There's hardly any music, giving it an eerie tone, and all of the events are left mostly unexplained. The thing that keeps you watching it in this film's case is the oddity of it, or at least that's what did it for me. I was intrigued by the beginning of the film, thinking it was some sort of modern magician's tale, but it got more confusing as the film went on. 
this was a little frustrating at times when I felt it went too far into an unexplained territory or subject matter. And this unexplainability lent itself to the eeriness of the film, though. So it really it, it went together after all. Uh, so symbolism plays a huge role in this movie. Uh, it's such a regularity, it seems almost as if they put it in just to confuse the viewer. And while I was watching the movie, I found myself constantly trying to figure out what the film could be a metaphor of, or really what it was just trying to represent. The only thing I will say about the conclusion I came to is that it was a biblical one. I highly recommend going and looking up a few interpretations of the film afterwards because some of them are pretty interesting and insightful. Um, now, the way the film was shot was pretty standard. All the camera angles were predictable and precise, and it was just enjoyable to see how crisp and well done it was. There was a use of symmetry and centered camera shots for some sort of symbolism, which, as I mentioned, is pretty rampant throughout the film. There's just so much symbolism. So you can either choose to think that they just like the way that looks, or all of it really does mean something, which is sometimes pretty hard to believe. I always like to pick out one way that the film uses the camera that I really enjoy. In this film, it has to do with searching for something. The character that the camera is following in this particular example goes into a shed in a third-person view, and once in the shed, it switches over to a first-person view. This puts the viewer into the shoes of the character and actually creates a lot of suspense since you are now personally searching the scene for something out of the ordinary. Another thing to mention about the filming of the movie is it just feels smooth. When Borgman is being chased in the opening scene, it never feels rushed. It always feels under control, just barely, and he always gets away by a tiny little margin. I love the feeling that this gives the movie. It's like you want him to get away so you're rooting for him, and you want him to be rushed and feel this sense of urgency, and he's so nonchalant and confident, it's just so weird. So the movie is rated R, and there are a few scenes that I found extremely disturbing for how violent and pointless they seem, once again just adding to the oddity and overall creepiness of this movie. The dreams Borgman gives to Marina in the movie are particularly disturbing and out of the ordinary, so I would just look out for those. Another notable feature of the film is the languages spoken. Uh, both English and Dutch are spoken in the movie. This combination would sound normal to anyone from the Netherlands, Belgium, or Denmark, but it is quite odd as an English speaker to hear this so casually switched between. It only adds to the uneasy feeling of the movie, and maybe unintentionally, but I really liked what it made the movie feel like personally for me, and really what I think any native English speaker would feel. So the movie says a lot about evil, and that is really easy to see. The movie kills people like it's nothing. They discuss it for maybe a few seconds, and then they do it without any remorse, removing the people they need, and just in a surgical way. True evil, which I believe Borgman represents in this film, has no real reason or purpose. It simply destroys and leaves. Borgman has no other reason than needing a shower to come into these people's lives initially, and he ends up completely destroying them. I'm going to give this movie a 7.25 out of 10. I enjoyed it, but I think it's a niche film. If you like thinking about a film and then having to look up what someone else might have thought about it after, you're going to like this one because you definitely have to. Another way that someone could just enjoy this is really just to view it as an abstract horror film. It's weird and scary and it'll probably give you nightmares. But there are no jump scares or monsters like in a typical horror film. Um, but like I said, it could definitely leave nightmares, which in my book makes it a horror film.
You can rent this movie on Vimeo, Amazon, and iTunes, just to name a few. And if you're looking for a different movie that is just off the beaten path, this one's for you. Feel free to send any suggestions or comments to the email address publicaffairs at wknc.org. I'm always glad to hear feedback and opinions from my listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Snowverated. This is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. Have a good night. Good afternoon to you listeners out there. I'm Peter Swazeni bringing you this week's segment of the Community Calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events going on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. There will be a brand new series of special seminars occurring this spring starting tonight at 7 in Bosdian Hall. The seminar is titled The Global Eradication of Malaria and will be presented by Miss Deb Dirick. Deb Dirick is a global health thought leader with nearly two decades of policy and international development experience. As a president of Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria, she leads the organization in educating and engaging U.S. decision makers on the life-saving work. Again, this seminar will be February 3rd from 7 to 8 in Bosjian Hall, room 3712. This event is open to the public. Hunt Library will be featuring the Moho Realty Architectural Movie Series series double feature this Thursday from 7.30 to 9 in the Hunt Library Auditorium. The double feature will start off with a movie titled Archaea Culture. It's a thoughtful yet critical look at the architectural studio. The film offers a unique glimpse into the world of studio-based design education through the eyes of a group of students finishing their final design projects. Interviews with leading professionals, historians, and educators help create crucial dialogue around the key issues faced by this unique team teaching methodology, and the built environment these future architects will create. The second film to this double feature will be titled Me and My Molten. In this witty animated short film set in 1960s Norway, a seven-year-old girl hopelessly asks her out-of-touch modernist parents for a bicycle. But the unconventional ways of this architect couple soon produce comical embarrassment and anxiety. This film was nominated for a 2015 Academy Award. The doors to this double feature will open at 7 p.m. Tickets are $10 at the door. Cash, check, credit, debit are accepted. Mod Squad members get in free until capacity is reached, and the first 100 NC State students with ID get in free. NCSU Friends of the Library get 10% off of tickets. The Moho Architecture Movie Series is co-presented by North Carolina Modernist Houses. For more information, visit ncmodernist.org movies.htm. Do you like solving problems? Would you like to make sure your solutions have impact? Or do you have an idea for a new product or service and want to test its market appeal? Well, Wolfpack Your Lunch series is hosting another event this Friday titled Think Like a Designer, and you may join them to learn about design process and practice human-centered design in action. This is a hands-on session, so be prepared to participate. Presenter and facilitator of this monthly Wolfpack Your Lunch session is Dr. Leah Shamblin, who has more than two decades' experience in strategic leadership for domestic and international programs in higher education, business, and international service. She currently is a professor of practice and director of the Master of Global Innovation Management program in 
Liverpool College's Jenkins Graduate School of Management. She has a doctorate in adult education from NC State University and an MBA from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a bachelor's in business administration from UNC Asheville. She also holds certifications in human-centered design and social entrepreneurship. There is no charge to attend this event, but registration is required. The URL to the event can be found on the university's calendar. And again, this event will be in Hunt Library in Duke Energy Hall from 12 to 1. Now, later that Friday evening is First Friday. First Friday is a free self-guided tour of downtown's cutting-edge cultural hotspots. Local art galleries, art studios, alternative art venues, and museums stay open late for the first Friday of every month to welcome thousands of art-seeking enthusiasts downtown. The event runs from 6 to 9, but some venue hours may vary. For detailed venue information, please visit visit the venues page. Attendees may also take advantage of the First Friday specials offered by participating restaurants and retailers. Look for the First Friday flags to easily locate participating venues. A detailed map will be available at each location. Pick up your very own copy for easy event navigation. Visit the galleries and listen to live music. Delight in divine culinary experience and take advantage of the First Friday specials offered by all participating restaurants. Experience art in all forms. The Krispy Kreme Challenge will be this Saturday from 8.30 to 11. The 2016 Krispy Kreme Challenge, benefiting the North Carolina Children's Hospital, starts at the Memorial Bell Tower on campus. Runners will travel two and a half miles through historic downtown Raleigh to the Krispy Kreme, located at the intersections of Peace and Person Street, where they will attempt to consume one dozen original glazed donuts. The challenge, far from over, runners must then travel two and a half miles back to the Bell Tower. Best of luck to you registered for the Krispy Kreme Challenge. And for those who aren't, it's really great to go and watch and support your friends. One more event I'd like to get to is the Student Short Film Showcase. This will be next Tuesday at the Hunt Library. If you have not attended this fan-favorite program, which began in 2011, now is the time. Each year, the talent of NC State students impresses and delights audiences as well as screen their best animations and short films. Student filmmakers will be on hand to discuss their work and their creative process. This event is open to the public. This event will take place Tuesday, February 9th from 7 to 8.30 in the Hunt Library Auditorium. So there's plenty going on around town this week and on campus. I hope this segment has turned you on to an event or two this week. And if there's ever an event that you would like to promote on Eye on the Triangle, you may send your promo to publicaffairs at wknc.org. This has been the Community Calendar. I'm Peter Swazeni, wishing you all a great week ahead. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. We are with students that proposed action items to increase inclusion for minority students on campus at the NC State Student Government hosted um, Racial Climate Town Hall. So with us, we have DJ Johnson, Associate Director of Diversity Student Outreach with Student Government, Mariah Barrow, Director of Diversity Student Outreach with Student Government as well, and Camry Riskew, Diversity Activities Board Chair for UAB. So to start off, how did these town halls come about and um, why do you think they were necessary? Um, this is Daryl Johnson, our DJ. Um, the town hall really came from student leaders coming together and 
really recognizing that the racial climate on campus was a problem. And um, we looked back at, you know, previous town halls and kind of looked at the progress made from them. And a lot of them were kind of the same setup where um, we would all join in a room and then discuss. And this time we wanted it to go past the conversation. So that's where the action items really came from to try to actually create the conversation but also to continue it on and to follow through with progress being made. So what would you say the racial climate is on campus? Mariah? Hello, I'm Mariah Barrow. Okay. Um, I would say that the racial climate is, depending on your position on campus, it can differ. Um, I think that oftentimes when we see blatant things of racism or anything, you know, everybody kind of has a response to it. But I think a lot of what the students who were expressing concerns through this town hall were feeling is that their voices weren't being heard and that this was a really good platform for them to be able to, you know, express their needs, their need for a safe space on campus and to let everybody on campus know that we're here, we feel like these things need to be addressed and this is how we want it to happen. So you said that there were um, racial climate town halls in the past. How effective were those, and do you think this one will be effective as well? Hey, I'm Camry Rescue. Um, I think that while the other town halls may have been very effective in expressing feelings and concerns, it was definitely preaching to the choir. Uh, we really wanted to step outside of that and move into a space where we could talk to administration, um, different people in departments on campus, and come with concrete ideas of what we wanted to see and the change. And that's where we were, we feel as though we were different. We really felt like this was the time to make an impact. This was the time to stop preaching to the choir and start preaching to people who could actually help us make a significant change on campus. So what kind of turnout was was it at the town hall? Was it a lot of students? Was it a lot of students of color, uh, faculty, administration? Um, I would say looking from the stage out, we definitely got a good mix of all of them. Um, it was a scholars event, so we got a lot of students that um, are interested in diversity. We had the administration there. We got the students that were there. Um, and we had it in the middle of the day, so that kind of um, discouraged some students from coming because they would have had to miss class. But we still got a large turnout. And the conversations that have followed in our meetings have also had very good turnout. So. Um, trying to create the committees to actually work towards the action items and to create timelines. Those meetings have also had good turnouts as well. A lot of students have commented that the Climate Town Hall was at a very inconvenient time. Uh, why was it Why was it that time picked? A big motivator for the time choice for the Town Hall was that we really wanted to push the presence of faculty and administrators to be at the program. And from other conversations we've had with them they have expressed that a lot of the events we hold are in the evening and maybe at inconvenient times for them so to be able to accommodate the kind of conversation that we wanted which we did want to be between students and faculty and administrators was really the main push um for the for the time i know that uh students have also uh had concern over how many uh administrators were present um how many administrators were present I would say no more than about 20. Um, if we're talking about administration from Holiday Hall, those numbers were a little bit um, lower just because I know that 
Um, Chancellor Woodson had some prior obligations and so did other members of his team. But the people that were there were very informed, very involved. Um, They were taking notes the whole time. They asked questions after the town hall was over. And so um, I don't think the numbers, there was anything wrong with the numbers. We definitely wish that more of administration from Holiday Hall could have been there. But we are looking into other opportunities to meet with those administration. And when you say administration from Holiday Hall, you mean like the provost and the chancellor and everything like that, right? Yes. We're talking about, you know, Chancellor Woodson, Warwick, um, Justine, uh, while Justine and I pretty sure- Justine Hollingshead? Yes. um, I'm pretty sure both of them were there, but that is definitely um, a good resource to look out for when we're talking about these issues um, because they do take charge in our- um, very big people on campus. So we definitely want to keep them in the loop as well. Mm-hmm. At the town halls, I kept on hearing like the faculty and the administration where they were coming up and they're giving their own opinions and testimonials, but they kept on saying like, change takes time. You guys need to be patient. Do you think that's fair? And do you think that the timeline that they're proposing for changes are is acceptable? So, so far, um, administration hasn't really taken like a super initiative to create timelines. It's students and administration working together at this point. Um, so it wasn't that the the phrases that they were using basically saying that change takes time. It wasn't bothering us because we understand that, you know, you can't create these super impactful programs that we're trying to create in a matter of like two weeks. So we understand that. But the difference between this town hall and other ones is that the committees that are following up these meetings that we're having that directly correspond with the action items that were presented, those are going to help us um, maintain accountability from the students and the leaders from the student body that are going to be working on these action items as well as administration. What were those action items? What do you want to see done? So the first action item was about Um, inclusivity and multicultural competency training for registered student orgs. Um, The second one... Organizations? Yes. Okay. Um, The second action item was about multicultural competency and inclusivity training or conversation um, being hosted or administered during new student orientation so that all students will be reached in a matter of four years, basically. Um, The third one... I'll let Camry take over her action item. The third one is transparency and just the revamping of our student code of conduct so that when we have issues of discriminatory practices or um, a student who may say or do something that offends another student, we have an outlet for them to go to instead of the continuous um, let's go to the African American Cultural Center, MSA, or a faculty member. Let's actually bring the other student in and have a conversation about why their actions may have been wrong. Okay, so under that code of conduct, would the if they found the student who wrote the N-word, the derogatory slur in the free expression tunnel, right now there's not kind of an outline to discipline that student? So there's not an outline to discipline that student because um, our student code of conduct is very behavioral-based, so there has to be some kind of... Um, actual physical behavior and so if there was to the kid was to be found um how that would work out would be 
quite interesting and kind of muddied. Um, and so that is why we're here with this third action item is to really define what those consequences could look like for someone. Because if we were to find the student who wrote the N-word all over the free expression tunnel, um, we would, obviously that's not acceptable behavior. And so there should be some type of um, repercussion to that. But right now, as the student code of conduct looks, um, in, in my opinion, I don't think there's any kind of repercussion for that. Uh, so, DJ, uh, what has been the administrator's uh, response to, I believe your action item was action item number two? Yes. Um, and can you speak a little bit more about that? So um, I'm kind of heading over, as well as Rodney Strickland, um, we're heading over the action item about inclusivity trainings and trying to create the conversation of multicultural competency during new student orientation and the buy-in from new student programs to mental health professionals to OID has been all in. Um, we discussed with them before the town hall about options to present during the town hall, and we just wanted to get the buy-in from upper-level administration as well. Um, the only issue is the feasibility of orientation. It's a very tight schedule. Um, it's very compact. There's a lot of things back-to-back. So just working around that and trying to create something that students will actually have a positive takeaway from um, so that students don't feel uh, marginalized or having everything that they've known from high school up challenged necessarily. Um, so trying to get all of that understood. But administration is basically all in. So what would it look like? Would it look like talks? Would it look like uh, skits? What exactly? So right now, we're not sure. Um, everything is kind of working through. The town hall was really to get the buy-in for that um, action item. But right now, the options are from having OID and student leaders on campus um, host some type of movie or skit, and then having orientation leaders who are trained on multicultural competency kind of facilitate a discussion. Um, it could be OID ambassadors, which OID has been pushing for for a while. And I think student leadership can agree that it's definitely a need on campus to have a student group full of leaders who can help OID train. Um, and Arts NC State has also been on board with talking about doing skits that would help facilitate the conversation as well. So right now, um, these are what the committee meetings are for. And our next steps are kind of to reach out to administration and student leaders and student departments to see what would be the best option and what's going to be feasible for new student programs to implement very soon. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. After a quick break, we'll be back with uh, the students, student leaders who proposed action items for increasing inclusion for minority students on campus. If you have any questions, tweet us at WKNC underscore EOT. This is Chris from Metz. You're listening to WKNC. Are you a loser? Are you just plain horrible in every single way? Well, I got good news. Your day's coming. It's it's WKNC's Double Barrel Benefit season, and we got a raffle. And let me tell you, I can feel it. You're going to win. You're going to win at this raffle. I don't know what you're going to win. Probably pride, confidence, maybe even a, a lover, you know, because of how great your prize is that you won. Anyways, if you're a loser, come on out to Double Barrel Benefit and be a winner. The Revolution. Feed the Pack is a community-based food pantry at NC State. The pantry's mission is to help feed the needs of all food-insecure members of the NC State community with dignity and respect. 
Feed the Pack Pantry has varying afternoon hours Monday through Friday and is located in room 1333 Broaden Hall. More information about Feed the Pack Pantry, donations needed, and opportunities to volunteer are available by emailing feedthepackpantry at ncsu.edu. This announcement is a public service of 88.1 WKNC. This is WKNC 88.1 FM, and we are having a conversation about the racial climate on campus and um, diversity and inclusion. So uh, before the break, we're talking about the action items that a few student leaders on campus have brought up to kind of improve the, the atmosphere on campus. And we want to discuss one fourth action item with Mariah. So Mariah, what is this action item and where did it come from? So the fourth action item that we presented at the town hall was for an Asian American assistant director in multicultural student affairs. Um, this was um, an action item that had been worked on for some time by students, a member of the new student organization, Asian Students in Alliance. And they had done thorough research about similar institutions, um, similar to our demographic at this school and how they had resources for Asian American students. And so while Asian American students are also a minority on this campus, um, we all felt that they deserve that representation in multicultural student affairs like the other groups who have it. And so um, that's something that they were really pushing. And how was that received by administration? Um, well, I think everyone agrees that it's a good idea and it really is needed. Um, administration is very concerned about the financing part of that um, taking into consideration that would include a whole salary, um, a whole nother set of benefits in an office that's not really financed very well by the campus already. And so asking to put in another um, director is kind of a lot. And so it's going to sh take us showing them that there's a need for that and that the monetary part is going to outweigh or the monetary part doesn't outweigh the needs of the Asian American students. And so while they're on board, of course, money is the main concern in this situation. So was that action? Is that action item feasible then? Well, in our opinion, it's very feasible. Um, going back into the history of how the directors of MSA got into their positions to begin with, it all took students who felt like they needed someone to represent them to be in the office and so it's happened before and we feel like it can happen again definitely it's going to take some time and some perseverance but we feel like it is feasible so going back to your action item uh, which was kind of reforming the way a uh, uh, student conduct is kind of yes <laughs> formatted <laughs> around um so you went to, uh, you had a meeting with an administrator, Paul Cousins. He's uh, the head of. He is, I don't want to misspeak, but he is the director of the student code of, or the student office of conduct. And he also has another position. He does dual roles, but um, I don't want to misspeak, but his name is Paul Cousins. So you had a meeting with him. Uh, did you learn anything new about uh, your action item? Anything to work with? Yes, I learned a lot today about kind of the inner workings of our student code of conduct already and how the board 
is trained, how they operate. Um, there was a lot of insight, but mostly Paul and I had a very productive conversation. Um, he told me that his whole office is on board. Um, they're problem solvers, they're innovators. And so we spent a lot of time brainstorming this afternoon. Um, and I would like to think of myself as a problem solver as well. And my major is political science. So I'm very interested in how the inner workings and of course, um, it gets muddy with some of the legal issues and actually having to abide by federal and state laws. And so there was a lot that we have to consider. Um, but I definitely think we had an amazingly productive conversation this afternoon. Um, even I was really surprised at the timeline that we made and some of the goals that we outlined for each other. And I can't wait to see where it goes. I have a question. So a lot of these action items are being proposed by the minority students on campus. What role do you think the white students on campus have in creating a more inclusive environment? I think that um, that's a really good question. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like white students on campus being the majority, I can't really speak on the exact demographics of this university, but it is a very large majority um, of white students. And I feel like with that being said, there's a lot of influence there. There's a lot of, you know, being able to spread the word to their respective students and their respective organizations. So I think that the fact that there are so many students who feel that, um, you know, they want their voices to be heard and they're all, they've already for years and years been putting on programs and trying to, you know, speak more about their, their culture and things like that. I think that bringing in those students letting them learn more about it because a lot of times you have students who come here and they may be seeing people who look like them and not be forced to think any different. Whereas you may have someone of color who comes from a place where they see people who look like them a lot of time, they come to a predominantly white institution and it's much different. And so I think that having these conversations and having people to realize these differences in our experiences could be very productive. And so I think that, um, there's a lot to learn in these conversations, in these situations, and I think that's what they can bring to the table. It's just being really open-minded. And do you have anything to add, Cammie? I think, um, so I'm biracial, so I come from a family that's white and black, and so um, I have a unique perspective, right? I believe that sometimes the white students may feel as though we are not as open-minded as we are. And we're not here to attack anyone or to say that anything they're doing is wrong because really they're put in the same institution in the same um, situations that we are. It's just they're white and we're not. And so I feel like if that open-mindedness and coming into these conversations with us with an open heart will really um, help us achieve our goals. And I think that that sometimes gets misconstrued in the messages um, and the things that we're trying to accomplish. Um, but we feel like we're all kind of on the same page and we just want to work together and stop this, you know, it's the black students and the white students. Us and the versus other. them kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's not how we see this. And um, we just kind of want to fix these problems together. Mm-hmm. So one of our Twitter followers, Aliana R., wants to know where exactly are the resources for multi-ethnic and multiracial students? Um, there are a lot of different opportunities. We're in Witherspoon right now, which houses the African American Cultural Center. 
Um, as well as in Tally Student Union, we have Multicultural Student Affairs, which has representatives from our Hispanic population, Native American, and African American. Um, can you think of anything else, Cam? We also have the Office of Institutional Equity and Diversity, which houses um, a lot of great faculty and administration who are very dedicated to students um, that come from diverse backgrounds. We have the GLBT Center, the Women's Center, um, all of which have great, wonderful, diverse people in them that really want to offer resources and guidance and help to all students, not just, you know, multiracial mm -hmm. Absolutely. And going off of that, I would say that all their doors are open to anybody who wants to learn more. And I think they'll all be happy to give any information that any student wants. So the recent posts on Wolfpack students uh, and their response from a majority of the students who were responding to them, and not only the response of the posts on Wolfpack students, but also on the Instagram picture mm -hmm. uh, of the, the girl who was reducing the post. Um, the, it shows that the racial can't the racial campus climate needs work. Um, I know in the past there's been campus climate surveys to understand the disparity of how minorities felt versus how the mainstream white students felt. Uh, is there a call for that? Is there a call for a racial campus climate survey to understand uh, the disparity? I think. Uh, a survey kind of does our stories a disjustice. I think that putting our feelings and putting how um, we feel about this campus and its climate into a survey is not the best way. I feel like there are much easier opportunities for um, the people that want to know the answers to these survey questions to really understand and know. Um, that means coming to meetings like Multicultural Leaders Collaborative or um, just reaching out to a student that you see on campus who um, might be in MSA or in a, the African-American Cultural Center and asking them how they truly feel because those campus climate surveys, in my opinion, um, kind of just do us a disservice and put us in this one box. You have to feel one way or the other instead mm -hmm. of really bringing that personable human aspect to this problem. So what do you hope that people take away from the town halls? I hope that people will first and foremost see that there is a need for conversations like this. I don't want people to look at this and, you know, kind of roll their eyes and groan like, oh, this is another town hall. You're beating a dead horse because that's not the case at all. I think that oftentimes um, in a university setting, especially with such a large one as ours, you know, a lot of different issues that are happening on campus can go unnoticed. And I think that if students don't express their concerns or like there's a need for action, then the people up high may think that there's not a problem. And so I think that, you know, we really wanted to have this conversation between students and faculty and administrators to kind of collaborate and to let everybody know that we're here to work together. We want to make progress. It's not something that's going to happen overnight or with one event. It's something that's going to have to continue to go on. Um, with years to come. And so I hope that this will give momentum to, you know, have other conversations for other, you know, groups on campus who may feel like they need to have their things talked about as well. You know, based on the success that we may see from this, um, we can see uh, things going forward with those things as well. And I think that it could really be positive in the long run. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mariah and Camry and DJ. Um, I know that the next Racial Climate Town Hall will be March 1st at 7 at 7.30 p.m. And the uh, location is to be determined. But as always, we'd like to thank Saif Hassan, Kevin Kronk, Jamie Halla, Nick Weaver, Peter Svizeni, and Michael Ashburn for contributing. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on Twitter at EOT underscore WKNC underscore EOT. And be sure to check out our blog and podcast at WKNC-EOT, where we will also have a YouTube video from the previous Racial Climate Town Hall uh, with our podcast. But you can catch another episode of Island Triangle next week right here on WKNC. For Island Triangle, I'm Mirtha Donna Storg. And I'm Ian Grice.